You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. We're reading Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 1. All right. Uh, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low And one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid because of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. So I recently came across uh, something called Your Life in Weeks. I don't know if you've seen this. Let's pull this up if we can. Okay, so Your Life in Weeks breaks down the average life down into these little blocks representing weeks. And one of the descriptions read like this. It said, your life is made up of 4,160 weeks, and this tool will help you make the most of them. Fill in a new square with each passing week, and you'll quickly experience improved focus, a heightened perspective on life, and a rush of motivation to take consistent action. Sort of morbid, isn't it? Could you imagine, like, Saturday afternoon, you're just like, how? One step closer to the end there. And it may be clever. I think that that shows, I think that's like 26 years or something like that. And it goes to 100. Probably, you're not probably going to make it that long. Um, but it, it's just actually sort of depressing if you think about it that way. You're just like, wow. And while this may be clever, it's not new. This is actually what the preacher has been doing all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He is holding before us the reality of how short our days actually are. 
I love how one commentator named Derek Kidner, he described it like this. He said, he's allowing death to rattle its chains at us so that we are stirred towards action. The preacher keeps saying, hey, look, death is coming for you. It's coming for you and you and you. Life is extremely fleeting. A, a phrase that you have heard often in this book is, all of life is vanity, like smoke or vapor. It's here today and then it's gone. So what are you going to do about it? Today, we come to what the narrator of Ecclesiastes calls the end of the matter. This is the conclusion to the preacher's lifelong search for meaning. But this isn't just his conclusion. What he's inviting us to do is to consider our conclusion as well. You see, the preacher closes by applying pressure in a place in our lives that I think that we all at times feel a little bit of uncertainty, maybe some anxiety, maybe even today a little bit of dread. And that, that pressure point in our lives is the fear of wasting our life. The concern that we're going to reach the end of our life and then realize way too late that it was all for nothing. Just deep regret with no ability to change it. And this isn't just a secular, sort of like non-believer problem. This is something that Christians face as well. The concern that we will face the end of our days with deep regret, with no strength and no time left to do absolutely anything about it. Now, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the beginning of the series because personally, I didn't realize it toward the end. This, that's the bummer about preaching through books. It's like at the very end, you're like, Oh, that's what it was all about. I wish I could go back and start over with that perspective, but I can't. But I think one of the main goals of the preacher is that you and I do not waste our lives chasing after the wind. Why has the preacher spoken all of these things so that we don't waste our lives? And I can safely assume that this is probably a shared goal among us. I don't think anyone here wants to get to their life, the end of their lives and say, I wasted it. Now, the preacher explored a number of avenues trying to find that thing that would make his life matter. That, that, little, that, that way to make that little dash between his date of birth and his date of death on his gravestone, to make that little dash mean something more than a little dash. Something that would give his life purpose and meaning. Something that would cause his life and his actions to resound forever. He, and so he, he searches in things like wealth and success and pleasure and wine and women and you name it. But again and again and again, he comes to the same conclusion that there is nothing under the sun that is capable of doing this, of giving life meaning. And that all of the successes and all of the achievements in the world cannot change this for a single person. But in this final portion of his book, after allowing the tension to grow, and I've felt this tension as we've walked through this book, he, he's leaving us sort of right on the brink of becoming pessimists and cynical about life. Just at that moment where we're about to say, maybe he is right. Maybe life is just one big waste of time. He finally concludes with surprising hope. And he shows us this may not seem very phenomenal, but I think it actually is. He shows us that we don't have to waste our life. You don't have to waste your life. 
that we can live a life that truly matters, not just today, but forever. And it all hinges on remembering. That's the theme that frames the entire final chapter here, remembering. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this passage under three headings. We're gonna look at remembering your creator, secondly, remembering your dust, and then thirdly, remember that eternity awaits you. Let's begin with remember your creator. Look with me again in verse one. Remember also your creator in the days of your what? Youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So here it is. A life of lasting meaning depends on remembering today. What does it mean to remember? To remember is so much more than some sort of like mental recalling of something like, oh, I gotta take out the trash, tomorrow's trash day. Or remembering some sort of memory from the past. It's bigger than that. When the Bible talks about remembering, it means allowing the truth of God's existence and his creative involvement to shape our view of life. To completely alter our perspective on the present moment. One author named Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it this way, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his sandals. I love that idea. To remember then means to see all of life afire with the presence of God. Every bush, everywhere we turn, God is present and powerful. And to then respond worshipfully, uh, worship fully, rather, and obediently. But this isn't just remembering some sort of general idea about God, but he says, remember your creator. Remember your creator. What he's saying is, you've got to refuse to see life separated from the presence and power of the one who formed the entire universe out of nothing. The one who spoke galaxies into motion. The one who breathed life into dust. The one who put breath in your lungs at first and continues to give you life. Psalm 139 says this. For you formed my inward parts. Speaking to God, you, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. This is the prayer of someone who remembers their creator in the days of their youth. And this is so vital in our day. I want you to think about it this way. That there is no way to confidently say that life has meaning, no way to confidently, confidently say that life matters apart from this truth, apart from remembering and recognizing our creator. Because otherwise, we are simply just a bundle of biological matter living in a cruel world, subject to random collisions of chance, one day becoming biological compost for a future thankless generation. What value is there in that? Apart from our creator and that recognition, how can you definitively say, my life matters, your life matters? But when life is lived remembering our creator, we live with gratitude. 
We live with wonder. We live with dignity. We also recognize dignity in others. And we remember the endless possibilities of God's renewing power at work in the world today. And what the preacher says is that we've got to remember this in the days of your youth. Sometimes I forget that we're still a young church. We've been around 15 years this weekend, which is nuts. But we are still a young church. It takes visiting other churches sometimes to remember that. We are the, the, in the years of our youth. And he says, remember the Lord, your, your creator, in the days of your youth, not later in life, not after you accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish, not once you've gotten your wild days out of your system. Today, Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 2 Corinthians 6, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews 3, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called what? Today, today, before it's too late. Did you catch that? The preacher says before this, before that, before this. Three different times he says before this. Why? Why does today matter so much? Because tomorrow may be too late. As one author put it, many have remembered too late, but none too soon. Countless people will remember once it's too late. No one ever will remember too soon. I've heard a number of young people say things like, I'm waiting till I'm older to really devote my life to Jesus Christ. I thought this. Or I'll wait till I'm an adult to take serious studying God's word. Or I'll wait until I'm out of college to really join a church. Or I'll, I'll wait until I'm married to take serious God's vision for sexual wholeness. Or I'll wait until I've got money or I've purchased the house to take serious God's call to be a generous giver. Or I'll wait until I'm retired to really give my time to serving the kingdom of God. Thinking that the longer that you wait, the easier it will become to take God serious. The more natural it will become as you just sort of kick the can up the street. But the Bible shows us that the very opposite is true. The very opposite is true. And the preacher paints this very vivid picture that days get evil, that days get darker, the clouds move in, a person's strength and vitality dries up, doors shut, windows of opportunity close, the song fades, desires fail, and then poof, it's gonzo, lights out, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to get it back. And so the preacher is saying, and I want to say this clearly and definitively to us today, stop postponing taking God serious. Don't live with regret. Instead, rearrange your life around him today. Do not wait to live in the fullness of God. Because while life under the sun is absolute futility, a life that is centered on God will bring ultimate meaning and fulfillment even today. This is what we're being invited to experience when the narrator at the end says, fear God 
and obey his commandments. Isn't that an interesting conclusion to all this like philosophical stuff and all these questions? And then his conclusion is this, fear God, obey his word, deuces, I'm out. But he's calling us, what he's calling us to do is to come under the healing and fulfilling reign of our creator. Because when we worship and when we obey him, that's when we discover what we were made for. Or more specifically, who we were made for. This is where we realize that our deepest desires actually align with God's deepest desires. And who would have thought we as his creatures were actually created to enjoy our creator? Remember your creator. The second thing we have to do to live a meaningful life is to remember that you are dust. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are dust. Very good. No offense. Say that. No offense. (laughs) Um, Look at me in verses six through seven. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Life is beautiful. And like the many things that are listed here, our world is filled with beauty and it's filled with brilliance. We get to experience, any one of us, every single person, regardless of their faith, get to experience the various degrees of God's common grace that he has spread about in creation. Experiences of love, birth, invention, art, music, laughter, and the list goes on. But at the same time, all of it is breaking down. Every single thing is withering away and breaking down. It's what's been called in the past, and I know it's now a contended idea, but in the past it was called the second law of thermodynamics, which says that things naturally tend towards disorder. So a, a professor of biochemistry put it this way. The universe is constantly getting more disorderly. Viewed that way, we can see the second law all around us. We have to work to straighten a room. I'm looking at my kids right now. Uh, We have to work to straighten a room, but left to itself, it becomes a mess again very quickly and very easily. Can I get an amen on that? Yes. Even if we never enter it, it becomes dusty and musty. How difficult to maintain houses and machinery and our bodies in perfect working order. How easy to let them deteriorate. Can I get another amen on that one? In fact, all we have to do is nothing. And everything deteriorates, collapses, breaks down, wears out, all by itself. What a cruel world. I recently had this conversation with some of my kids that their bodies are growing. Their bodies are moving towards life. The, the food and the sleep is like stored and repurposed as energy to expand. But I have reached that threshold where I'm kind of moving in an opposite direction where everything I am trying to do is to slow down the process of death. You are moving towards life. I am moving towards death. And the best thing that I can hope for now and for my future is to slow that process. Easy, 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 but never stop it. I will never be able to stop that process. 
I will fight it until the day that I die. And the Bible describes why this is a universal experience. It says in Romans chapter eight, for the creation was subjected to, and here's an Ecclesiastes term here, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's the story of the Bible. That the world was intended not for death, the world was intended for, to be regenerative. In other words, life ever expanding. Not things breaking down, not things moving towards disorder, but life and vibrancy breaking out. God, we told, we're told in Genesis 2 that God formed man out of the dust and then breathed life into him from disorder, just from dust, into and towards order and life. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the world, expand this life. That was the motion. But we also know that sin entered into God's good world through our rebellion and sin. And with that sin brought brokenness. So no longer vines of life expanding, but thorns and thistles, moth and rust and mildew and sickness and cancer and pain and death. Things began to deteriorate. And now in this tragic reversal, mankind is actually returning to dust and the breath departs. As we age, we are just in the process of our own undoing. And so in order to live a meaningful life, this may sound strange, we've got to remember this. We've got to keep this front and center of our minds and hearts that we, we have to admit our frailty. We have to admit our inability to escape this future. We have to acknowledge the, how incapable we are of true human progress. We have to remember that we are all dust. Not so that we become hopeless, but so that we remember our God. The one who the Bible describes as breathing life into dust. And so that we remember that he not only drew near once to create the world, but in the person of Jesus Christ, he drew near again to recreate us, to set us free from the bondage that we have to futility. He breathed life into dust, and can I get a hallelujah? He'll do it again. What we see here in Ecclesiastes 12 is not just our fate, but we see the fate that Jesus chose for himself as well. In the Gospels, we, we read that on the day of Jesus' death, as he stood condemned in our place, as he took the penalty of sin that we deserved, that the sky was darkened, that the mourners mourned, that the people trembled, that the beautiful temple uh, curtain overlaid with gold was torn in two. Like verse 11 states, the nails were firmly fixed. It was the breakdown of all breakdowns, the giver of life entering into death. The one who breathed his spirit into man yielded up his own. 
Infinite power became breakable. The shepherd became the slaughtered lamb. The maker of heaven and earth was placed into the ground and the door was shut. And yet, as the preacher says in verse four, and I find this line very interesting, and one rises up. Death couldn't hold him. And on the third day, Jesus rose to new life, conquering death. And while our fate became Jesus's fate, the good news of the gospel is that through trusting in his life, his death, his resurrection, his fate now becomes our fate. We are raised with him into new life as well. And as C.S. Lewis describes it, death itself started to work backwards. Heaven is working backwards into our life now, turning agony into glory, even transforming death itself into the doorway into eternity. Friend, yes, you and I are still dust. The gospel doesn't change that. But listen, we are beloved dust. We are beloved dust. The kind that God takes into his gracious hands once again and breathes his life into us. The very raw material, the very dust that God now uses to form a new humanity. This is what gives life lasting meaning, lasting purpose. Now let's look finally at remember that eternity awaits you. Remember that eternity awaits you. After instructing us to remember our creator and remember that we are dust, the preacher reminds us of something extremely important in verse 5. He says, man is going to his eternal home. That's where we're headed. A pastor named Paul Tripp coined a term that I think often applies to us. He called it eternity amnesia. And what he said is that we get so focused on the opportunities and the responsibilities and the needs and the desires of life here and now, life under the sun, that we lose sight of what's to come. We forget what life is like beyond the sun. We forget eternity. And he points out that you cannot make sense of life here and now without the vantage point of eternity. Because when you forget eternity, you lose sight of what's important. And when you lose sight of what's important, you become fixated on temporary things. And when you're fixated on temporary things, your heart seeks meaning in things that can't give it. And when your heart seeks meaning where it can't be found, it leaves you emptier and more hopeless than ever before. Therefore, you must remember, this isn't a like nice little Sunday pleasantry. This word remember isn't just like a sentimental thing. Oh, don't forget. This is vital. You have to fixate your heart on what's to come because this is the only thing that's gonna give life vitality. This is the only thing that is gonna stir us towards action and faithfulness today. Fixate your mind on heaven. A quote I've read, I don't know, a handful of times in the past and I'll continue to, comes from a French poet and author named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He said this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I think 
in a sense that this is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing. You wanna live a life that matters? You wanna live a life without regrets? You wanna build the kind of life that not only glorifies God and blesses the world today, but the kind of life that will last forever? then you've got to keep your hearts fixated on eternity. You've got to learn how to long for the endless immensity of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You've got to look beyond the here and now. To remember eternity is to see that life here and now, life today, September 4th, 2022, is never disconnected from the life that's to come. Now there's this epic scene from the movie Gladiator where Marcus Aurelius gathers his troops before battle and he says these famous words, what we do in life echoes where? In eternity. Just hear that like Marcus Aurelius voice. Echoes, 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 in eternity. And in a sense, this is absolutely true for better or for worse. Look with me in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. One day, the Bible says, all will be raised to stand before God, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who have believed and trusted in Christ, those who absolutely rejected him. And every single one of us, no matter how long we live, will give an account for our lives. Now, the hope of the gospel is that for the one who is hidden in Christ through faith, we will be received and we will be accepted, not according to our own deeds, but according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But, hear me, Christian, we're not off the hook. We all will still give an account for the way that we lived and the way that we stewarded the new life that we have in Jesus Christ today. There is eternal weight to everything, to the things that we say, to the things that we think, to the things that we do, the things that are done, the things that are left undone. There is absolutely nothing insignificant. There is absolutely nothing trivial. There is absolutely nothing unnoticed by God. Everything, everything. And when we remember this, when we keep this in mind, it creates an urgency and awareness that protects us from wasting the precious time, those little weak squares we have left. A pastor named John Piper probably preached one of the most inspiring sermons that I've ever heard, and it was called, Don't Waste Your Life. What a wonderful sermon title. And in it, he talks, he begins by talking about two elderly women about the age of 80 that went overseas for the sake of the gospel on a foreign missions trip, and they both died tragically on the foreign mission field. And he turns to a crowd, a ton of young people, and he says, was this a tragedy? Was their death for the sake of Jesus a tragedy? And he says, no. But he says, I, I will tell you what a tragedy is. And he lifts up, this is like 19... 99 or something. It was like 20-something years ago. He lifts up a reader's digest. He says, I know you don't read this, but some people still read this. And in it, it was an article about a retirement community in Florida, and it said these words. He reads it. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement. Now they live in Florida, spending all their time, and he lists a bunch of these retirement hobbies, and collecting seashells. And with just like John Piper's seriousness, he looks at the crowd and he says, that's a tragedy. 
That's a tragedy. And he said, there are people in this country spending billions of dollars to get you to believe that dream. And I plead with you, don't buy that dream so that you don't waste the last chapter before you have to give an account before the Lord for your life. And so that you don't stand on that day before God Almighty and say, here it is, God, my shell collection. Here it is, God, my trivial pursuits. Here it is, God, my life of chasing after wind. Reality, I'm not the first preacher to say it, and I pray to God I'm not the last. Don't waste your life chasing after things that don't matter. Don't waste your life chasing after wind. Instead, Spend every moment that God has given you embracing the lasting worth of Christ, seeking his kingdom. Remember your creator. Remember that you are dust. And remember that eternity awaits us all. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you.